Hello and welcome back to the Asymmetrical Haircuts Summer Reruns. This fourth and final episode comes from May 2022, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Janet and Stephanie sit down with Danny Kemp, a journalist at AFP, to discuss the role that journalists play in documenting war crimes. I would also recommend listening to episode 65 with Almedina Bernabeu, which touches on how journalists like Danny are becoming targets because of their reporting. Hope you all enjoy. When you're on the front lines of somewhere, you genuinely don't know where the front line is half the time. You can, you know, you ask at checkpoints. Sometimes the soldiers will go, no, don't go past. You know, if if you go past there, it's too dangerous. And you go, okay, fine, you stop. Sometimes they go, well, yeah, you can try. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And as always, I have with me my co-host, Janet Anderson. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. You know, one of the most striking things going on in the war in Ukraine is the way that journalists are again kind of really being pushed into the limelight. I mean, their roles as these first responders going to towns, villages, seeing bodies, horrible as it sounds, you know, counting the dead, talking to survivors, basically... They're the people mapping this rough draft of a war. Yeah, this happens in every conflict. And there's the great saying that uh, journalism is the first draft of history. But it feels especially stark this time where we also see a lot of firsthand accounts and social media accounts in films with what is going on uh, from the front line. Of course, many Ukrainian journalists have been pressed into becoming war correspondents. Suddenly their country is under attack. They've done their flak jackets and helmets, if they even have them, and they are just sent to go where the fighting is. And I really promise we'll manage to get hold of Ukrainian journalists to really manage to ask them about their experiences. Um, the people I've approached uh, for this podcast were all so busy. I mean, dealing in places like Kharkiv that it, it was difficult to pin anybody down. But meanwhile, I've been really conscious when one of the people that we know really well, I kind of think of him as one of our pack, uh, the tiny Hague press corps who all covered the ICC and the ICJ, he went off to Ukraine. So I wanted to start by saying, welcome home, Danny Kemp. Hi. Hi, Janet. And thank you. Yeah, it's, it's good to be back, obviously. Danny is the um, bureau chief of the Agence France Presse, the French press agency AFP. We know him from his coverage of the ICC and bemoaning the late Friday press releases uh, along with us and the joint struggle in getting Dutch ministry spokespeople to give us our full names and not just be quoted as a spokesman. And before Danny became bureau chief in The Hague, he also reported for AFP from Afghanistan, from Libya, from Pakistan, Brussels, where haven't you been, basically? Well, I mean, it's, it's a long list. A bit of London and Paris. A bit of London and Paris. There you go. A real cosmopolitan. So, Danny, I, I said this isn't your first rodeo, as they say. You've been in the field. You've covered a conflict uh, before. But should we just set the scene for some of our listeners who aren't journalists themselves? I mean, how long does somebody like you get sent out for? How, what's the conditions in which you're working? Just just give us a bit of scene set of somebody like you going off to Ukraine. Well, um, yeah, I mean, usually they keep the the kind of 
rotations or the you know the the missions pretty short particularly during the you know the start of a conflict where things are you know pretty hot you are working very long hours and and um you know people can get tired very easily and also you know i mean you're seeing a lot of stuff so for example my mission was for for 3 weeks um, with a few days either side of travel time to actually get from, you know, because there's no other way into Kiev except by land. So you either go by by train or, as I did, by by car. So, um, yeah, they keep the missions pretty short. And uh, basically you go in there and you're, you're living in a hotel. The office is a, in a hotel. The way it works is that basically every day you go out, you have a team of a text journalist and a video journalist and a photographer, along with a fixer translator and a driver. And pretty much every morning you go out in the car and you see what you can see. And uh, you do that for three weeks and then and then you come home, um, ideally. And the reason we asked you specifically is because you went to Butcher and Butcher has now become notorious for the footage of dozens of bodies laying out in the streets, some with their hands bound behind their back. I think the first I heard of Butcher was the AFP alert or bulletin that said at least 20 bodies seen in one street in town near Kiev, which I think is probably you that sent it. That's right, that was me. And rather than describe, having me describe the scene, can you tell us a bit of how it came that you went there? What ha- you know, what happens? How does your day start? How do you how do you end up in Butcher? Well, basically, I mean, it was a, it was you know, we got to Butcher after a process of about you know, I mean, certainly a week and a half of really banging our heads against a, a wall and trying to get get to this area because basically. Um, about midway through March, just after I got to Kiev, uh, an American journalist was killed just on the outskirts of Irpin, which is the commuter town just before, um, you know, between Kiev and, and Bucha. And so the uh, Ukrainian government banned all journalists from going anywhere near Irpin and Bucha. So basically for the, for you know, for at least two weeks um and um you know in many cases about a month no one was actually inside ear pin we could we could hear the shelling um sometimes the shelling would cross over into bits of the you know the bits on the outskirts of kiev where we were we could see the smoke rising we could see um traumatized people being taken out and sometimes injured people being taken out on on ambulances um and you know every day we were going out speaking to them but we were trying to get in as well and uh, we saw a couple of times, we saw TV crews go in with ambulances. They'd come in, get shelled and go out again. Um, you know, so they, they'd get some footage and it was interesting, but, you know, you, you couldn't, didn't really get a sense of what it was like there, except that it was obviously, you know, they were under fire and things were very bad. So we were very keen to get in, going out there pretty much every day. It was incredibly frustrating. We just we just could not get past this main roadblock. And so we were getting towards very near the end of my, my three-week stint. And I was thinking, like, I, I, you know, I'm... I'm going to have to go, you know, I'm going to be going home and I, you know, I won't have done this, this one thing that I really feel we should be doing this one place that I really want to go to, you know, tell the story of what's actually happening. Then on the uh, Friday, the 1st of April, um, we, our, our security advisor suggested that we take a different route. Um, so we don't, didn't keep going against the same road, roadblock that was blocked. So instead we went to south and then up through a village called Stoyanka across this sort of big crossroads on a motorway, which a week before we'd been told there were snipers and we couldn't pass. Anyway, this time it was clear. So that day, the Friday, after a little while, we managed to finally get into Earpin quite late in the afternoon. It's very foggy, complete ghost town, apocalyptic scenes. And we were like, okay, good. We've got this. We can finally report on this. But we couldn't do much. It was very late. Uh, we also got a flat tire. 
I'm just interrupting Danny just for for a moment because I can hear there's there's a lot of detail that we're going to go into. You say you have a security advisor, that's kind of standard, and presumably you're wearing flat jacket, helmet, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's how you have to travel around. And then how long do you aim to go out for? Do you go out for a day and then have to be back by dark? Is that is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, uh, the same as all the other international media, we you know we we go out helmet flat jacket you know security advisors are kind of i think for some organizations they've been using them for a while some organizations have been using them for for less time uh, you know there are two types i mean you certainly see some of the big tv crews around with these you know big hulking ex special forces guys who are sort of hanging around them all the time looking around for sort of possible threats and stuff what dark glasses at the ready and yeah literally, yeah. literally that like huge huge guys yeah. kind of go come on guys let's move out now you know that's that's not what we wanted and not what we had we had someone who just really was much better you know had experience of of um of situations like that but you know knew how to move around knew you know just gave us a sense of security about when it's okay to because some you know sometimes you don't know how far you can go because this you know this is the thing when you're on the front lines of somewhere you genuinely don't know where the front line is half the time you can you know you ask at checkpoints Sometimes the soldiers will go, no, don't go past. You know, if if you go past there, it's too dangerous. And you go, okay, fine, you stop. Sometimes they go, well, yeah, you can try. And you're like, okay, well, yeah. then then it's your judgment, basically. And you have to make a judgment. And, you know, for us, it was very uh, helpful to have someone who'd been in these situations, a lot of these situations before, had military training. And so knows, just knows a bit more, you know, about what to expect, about what to look for, about the, you know, the feel of things. Did you have that? Because I know... Or for- from working in Serbia, that my colleagues in the Serbian Bureau who'd gone through war would be like, basically, you hear some sound and they would be able to tell you what kind of mortar power it was and they would know how far it could kind of reach. So that would be, it's a, a skill you don't really want to have because there's only one way you you get that. But they would be like, uh, when there was gunshots in Belgrade, they would be like, oh, that's uh, nothing. This is just a pistol. It's not a semi-automatic or whatever. That's exactly right. And, you know, particularly in in... Um, Ukraine this time it was more of a difference of between being able to tell the difference between incoming and outgoing because you know but when you first get there it all just sounds like explosions you're like you know the, the explosions happen really near you and you're like Christ and duck and get out of the car or whatever uh, for, you know even for us after a few weeks you get to tell the difference between whether it's you know Ukrainian forces firing a rocket launcher um, next to you or whether it's actually shells coming in from 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 the Russian side so but you know he he in particular was good at being you know helped us to tell tell the difference between those different kinds of munitions that are being used but also just as i said a kind of feel he had a sort of feel for the you know the situation and the way the way things felt on the ground whether it was safe really whether it's safe to go on and also he would go on sometimes just to have a look a bit further see how things looked you know maybe a half a kilometer up the road this is great. It gave us a real confidence to push on. Whereas if it's sometimes if it's just like, you know, four journalists in a car, you're looking at each other and going like, should we go on? Yeah, probably or or not. You know, it gave us confidence to do that. So you were describing that you were driving, you had gone to Irpin, you took the photos of the desolate landscape, but that was still Irpin and a lot of other footage was from there. So what exactly. made that you was decide? The day, that was the day before. Well, actually, because that was the Friday, the April the 1st. Uh, just briefly to answer what you were saying before, basically, yeah, every day, um, you know, the team would wake up at sort of 6.30, get to breakfast at 7, and then you decide what you're going to do for the day. And the idea then is that you drive out. Ideally, you get 
you know, if, if you get lucky, you get your material in the morning and you come back and file. Otherwise, you're going to be out in the field for as long as is safe. And then you come back in the evening um, and you write your stories and you'll, you know, edit your pictures and video and send them. So anyway, for this day on the 2nd of, uh, 2nd of April, um, our photographer in particular wanted, uh, didn't feel he'd got enough from Irpin. Um, so he wanted to go back there. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, so was our, our, our videographer. And so they, you know, our, we headed back on the same route towards Irpin. Um, but it was clear that the road to Bucha was now open as well. And the day before, it had looked a bit more dodgy. We had heard from... Um, some soldiers that there was still some shelling there, but this on this day, the Saturday uh, in the morning when we set out, it looked it looked clearer. So we thought, well, okay, why don't we have a look? We discussed it and we decided that we would we we would try for butcher, and we went, uh, you know, and so we we drove in there and all the checkpoints are open, and suddenly we were there, um, and uh, you know you come in through the outskirts of town and meet, you know, again it's very it was a very cold day really eerie foggy just no one around there's just the people you know the occasional people sort of um weirdly walking their dogs but i mean literally you'd see every kilometer you'd see like one or two people if that immediately it was clear there were destroyed buildings damaged buildings um um burnt out and crushed cars on the road burnt out russian tanks um and uh you know, a very minimal presence of um, Ukrainian forces as well. I mean, really empty, really eerie, a, a real ghost town. And at what point, because that is the, what you're describing is also what we saw in Irpin, and it's kind of the what you would expect there. Did it, at what point did you realize that this is maybe more, or this is, did you hear before that Butcher might been might have been worse than Irpin? Had you had any indication of what you would find? We had, we had heard that Butcher was... The conditions are very bad in Butcher, but it's more kind of rumors. But more particularly, um, either the evening before or that morning, we had seen a social media video, which is one thing on Twitter, of a street where there are lots of bodies, or a military truck driving through a street where there are lots of bodies. It was meant to be Butcher. There was no proof that it was Butcher. There was no proof that it had come from this conflict, uh, even. But it was just something on social media. So at the back of my mind, I was thinking, I've, I've saw, I've, you know, I've seen this. I don't. You know, we don't know if it's there, but this is obviously something we want to we want to look for as well. Um, but you know, obviously at the same time, we had a kind of a, a a need just to get material, you know, enough material just to write our stuff, write a story for the day, even if we didn't find these. So obviously, you know, we spent we spent a good hour or two talking to people in Butcher that we found people who were been hiding in basements, um, a group of like elderly women who'd been had no you know water supplies no electricity supplies basically no food been scavenging from a from a supermarket and been set up their own soup kitchen in its own way a kind of weirdly you know heartwarming tale of survival um if you can call it that and you know we spent quite a long time with them and you know we thought in a way we were like well this this actually could be enough for us um this 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 in itself is a story of the kind of horrible conditions that people have been living in but you know, then we thought, well, let's let's go and have a let's let's press on a bit. So we moved a bit more into Central Butcher, and we that was the first. Then we saw around the railway station, we saw a really devastated sort of block of flats um, where there'd been heavy fighting. We spoke to some people there, and that's when we first saw the first body that we saw in in Butcher, which was um, it was a, a person laid out under a sheet, um, probably about a hundred meters away from where the army had suddenly arrived and was starting to give out food. So that was the first time we saw a body. So it's clear that there was more to be seen. We then got talking to a, a very 
emotional local man who was telling us about the, the fact that there was a sort of mass grave near where he lived, where four people had been buried in the, they'd been shot by Russians and they'd been buried in someone's back garden. He took us there. There was a, what appeared to be a grave with a sort of green wooden cross on. He, we, we talked to him. Obviously, we had no proof that it was there were people in there. But again, you know, we had we had his testimony, and you know, again, we we thought, well, we really got quite a lot of stuff. We went back to our where our cars were parked. Just then, our, our driver, uh, our Ukrainian driver, had been speaking to some of the soldiers and some of the residents who lived there. And he said to us, well, look, I've, they, these guys say that they, they know where there's a street with some bodies. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, we definitely want to try and look at that. So we, in fact, we got the, the same emotional man who showed us the mass graves. He's like, I know where this is. I'll take you there. So he jumped in, in you know, we, we actually traveled in a convoy of two cars. So he jumped in with us and took us about, you know, it was a little route about a kilometre away from the railway station to this residential area, kind of on the edge of town, actually where the quite close to where it joins into Irpin. And so you, you drive along this, it's almost like a construction site almost. I think they've been building work there. You go around a few roundabouts, there's not much there. And suddenly you come up, you can sort of come up to this long grey residential street. And just at that point, somebody in the car, I'm not sure who it was, just said, look, bodies. And so we immediately got the driver to stop the car and we could see through the, you know, through the windscreen, we could see that there were three bodies just lying in the, in the street by a pile of construction material. So of course we got out and we went to look at these bodies. You could see that they were in civilian clothes. One of them had his hands tied behind his back. And weirdly, it took us a, a little time to kind of look up and down. We were focused on them. We took us, took us a bit of time to look up and down the street, and it was then that we saw, like to the left, to the right, uh, bodies in each direction scattered over hundreds of meters. You've written about this, and we'll put the link to uh, your your piece in our show notes. But um, what struck me from you writing about this was the way that you, I mean, you've described now finding the bodies, and I'm sure we'll get some details. But what struck me was the way you kind of thought about what it was that you needed to do as a journalist, that you needed to count, that you needed to to be very clear, exact, you know, the accuracy that you needed to come out with. I mean, I wonder if you could describe a bit what was in your mind as, as you saw all of this and how you processed it journalistically. Yeah, well, I mean, I won't lie. Obviously, the first thing that happens when you see bodies is shock. You know, I'm not that, I'm not a kind of, you know, I haven't been covering decades of war. When I see when I see bodies, especially when I see three bodies, which is you know probably more than I've ever, you know it's more than I've ever seen in one place in my life. Obviously, I was shocked at first, and then as we you know looked up and down the road, we were thinking, I mean, this is just this is this is incredible. This is apocalyptic. This could be a war crime, but you're still in a kind of a, still in a bit of a state of shock for at least at least a at least a few minutes. Um, maybe a minute or two, but then obviously, then you know the kind of you know we're there to do a job anyway. And to be honest, you know by the end of three weeks, I was really tired, really cold as well, and you know in a kind of quite a robotic mode in a way that I you know I I knew that you know that was my job to do there, and I didn't wasn't once the initial shock had passed, this sort of training kicked in in a way, and this is 
training that comes from I think being a local reporter on a newspaper years ago and has been uh, you know been sort of reinforced ever since it's just you just got to get the details down as quickly as possible so uh, the, the other thing I had to overcome slightly was an instinct not to look too closely because it is, I mean, these are, you know, bodies that had clearly been there for a while. Some of them had horrible injuries. Some of them had been, sli- had been slightly decomposed by the looks of it in, 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 or with sort of uh, really bad wounds. So I had to overcome a bit of an instinct not, not to look too closely in a way, not to intrude on them. Um, but, you know, it's clear that you have to, you have to, because you need to know what's, what's happened to these people you need to try and describe this and you need to describe it as accurately and as dispassionately as possible largely because you know we know from previously in the conflict from other conflicts from the recent the way things have gone recently is that you there will be people who will try and question the veracity of this there will be people who will try and take um call this a conspiracy theory or what whatever you you know that when you when you deal with these kinds of things so I, you know, I knew I had to get it right um, more than probably more than anything else I've ever done. I was like, I have to get this right. So that was when, you know, I had to obviously the the other kind of you know classic journalistic instinct when you've been in a place like this is you have to count the bodies because you need to know what the death toll is. Um, and so while our Photographer Ronaldo Schmidt and our, our videographer Nico Garcia were were doing their work, and well, I was also trying to keep out of their way because the last thing you want is a kind of you know idiot text journalist loitering in the back of the shot, and you know they were trying to do their job and to portray the scene in a kind of in, to show the horror, but at the same time not not so graphically that people will just switch off or that, that it can't be used. So I just wanted to leave them to do their do their work. My job was just to go and look at these people, find out how many bodies there were, because you know the, these. This was going up half a kilometer up the street. You kept, I kept on walking. There'd be more. I'd keep walking. There'd be another group of two or three. You keep walking. There'd be someone else lying under a bike. And do you do it then in your head? Do you keep a tally on your phone, or you're putting like knots and crosses on in your in your in your notebook? Well, it, it's a good question uh, because at, I, I walked up and down the street. I I reckon two two or three times. Uh, the first time I was quite not hyperventilated but quite in a state of sort of I guess shock and excitement and trying in a way trying to calm myself a bit but each time I walked up and down the street I think I got two two or three different numbers and then one time I as I was looking I passed a a doorway of a house I was curious to see what was what it was like inside and there was another body there so in the end you know I did the only thing that I could really which was to I took pictures of all the all the people's bodies that were there and so with those pictures then I knew that I wasn't going to be overcounting or miscounting or missing anybody out and then it was with that that I could count and say look I know that there are I know that there are 20 bodies I mean for example I, I talked about it with our fixer and he said I thought there were 21 and I was like hmm so I recounted so we, we it's easy to make a you know it's easy to miscount in a situation like that but you know with the with the pictures on my on my phone um, however much I kind of wish they weren't on my phone you know I knew that the the number was right. You mentioned uh, the the amount of disinformation that is going around. I mean, have you uh, just? It's like a side question because I, I want to return to uh, our our main issue of this. But have you encountered people saying to you or online, you know, questioning whether you were really there, whether you really saw stuff, whether they were, you know, were they really corpses? I mean, any of that kind of stuff. 
Weirdly, personally, I haven't experienced that. I'm quite active on Twitter and previously when reporting things, you know, I have had uh, people trolling me or or questioning things, the same as any other journalist, I think. Strangely with this, not, not so much, but that's for me personally. In terms of um, the actual images that came out of Bucha that day, 100%. I mean, the, the Russian government said they were fakes. Russian state media said they were fakes, that the whole thing were was, was staged, etc., etc. And, you know, they enabled us at AFP to do a, a fact check based on the images of our photographers and also some of the images on my phone to say, in one case, for example, that Russian state media said, look, one of these bodies is moving. We could say, well, here's pictures of the bodies, of this particular body at different intervals. We were there. We were there for like, I guess, half an hour, 45 minutes. We did not see that body move. It didn't move. This person was clearly dead. So we were able to do that. So yeah, I mean, there, there was a big campaign to to say that Butcher and the our images and other images were disinformation. But for me, not. For me personally, no, which is strange. I wasn't expecting that. What I what struck me immediately also because of the war crimes trials I followed and the kind of evidence that gets presented, uh, particularly, for instance, about the Srebrenica massacre, is that it was immediately very detailedly noted also in your story that these bodies that you found were wearing civilian clothes and had hands bound behind their back. And I wondered, is that your kind of experience of the war crimes bit kicking in that you think to mention that specifically? Did you... You said you walked in and you said this might be war crimes. Does it? Did it? Did you immediately think like this? This might end up at the ICC. This is the kind of thing that I see in court. It's a good question. One I've thought about a bit more recently. At the time, I was just like thought it was just pure, you know, straightforward journalistic journalistic instinct. But since then, I think I think it really has made a difference. That I've been based in the Hague and, and and covered those war crimes trials because you mentioned Srebrenica and you know we've seen hearings and appeals hearings for both Karadic and Mladic at which you know the the veracity of uh, of what happened at Srebrenica has been uh, has been repeatedly called into question by the usual suspects um, and the evidence has been called into question the testimony by journalists has been called into question so I think yeah at the back of my mind I think that was I think that was there and and as I said, you know the first thing that I said to to, to our photographer there was this could be a war crime. So I think I think it must have been in the back of my mind because you know I've been covering it for sort of three years, not as long as you, Stephanie, by any means, Janet. But um, but you know I've, I've been covering these things. I knew that that is. You know, I knew that it could be it could be the site of a potential war crime, and therefore I guess I guess therefore the some somewhere in me was I knew that I had to be as as accurate as possible. It was you know more important than ever this time. When you saw this, you counted this. Do you then do you call this in from the field, or do you go back to Kiev before you get everything together and report it? You know, the journalist instinct is fine. I mean, we have noble instincts about telling the truth and and bearing witness. Uh, the other instinct is to be first. I mean, and we have, to be fair to Danny, we have also a desk and people that are calling you when you're like two, 30 seconds behind the other people reporting some news. So well, exactly, exactly. And I, you know, I know that, you know, we'd seen AP and Reuters around in, 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 in the area and around Kiev and, you know, we knew that they'd be there sometime. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd found, we thought we were the first 
Um, we saw one photographer slightly later on. So that actually sort of spurred us a bit to, to, to get moving. Um, we also knew there was a BBC crew who'd been circling around town, but we didn't see them um, at, at, at this place in Yablonska Street. So, I mean, the way it worked, had I, you know, had I been on my own, probably, yeah, I would have called it in um, as, you know, called in the alert to our, you know, our news desk or the people who were dealing with this and said, look, we've got this alert. We need to get it out fast. As it was, um, when you are working in a team, and I mean, this sounds like a, you know, this sounds a bit like a cliche, but particularly when you're working in a, in, in a war zone somewhere like Ukraine, it's really important that you work in a team you know, you depend so much on these people because you all keep each other going because sometimes, you know, sometimes things are boring. Sometimes things are, I mean, even sometimes, you know, you have to find ways to sort of amuse yourself in a war zone sometimes. Um, just keep keep spirits up. Um, uh, but sometimes things are dangerous. You you really rely on your team for everything. And so our decision was that, you know, we the photos, the videos, the text should all go out at the same time. And for, for us to do that, that meant we had to, you know, I wasn't going to file it over the phone. That meant that we were going to do everything as quickly as possible, get what we needed, but then go drive back, drive back to Kiev and, and file our material there. You know, it felt weird being in the car, sitting on the knowledge that we had this 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 story, this information. And I spent most of the journey back writing the story so it would be ready to file as soon as possible. And the other part of the journey, worrying that someone else had got it very good of you to be so honest about it. I'm sure it, maybe for some of our listeners, it's a bit inside baseball, the uh, the competition that exists. But just, yeah, maybe from my point of view, just to say, um, try to explain people how the media system works, that the, you, the agencies, people like you at AFP, Stephanie at Reuters, you you define sort of the news agenda often for the world and, and you're each trying to define it first but also accurately so uh, it's very nice that you're both prepared to sit in the same room together and to talk about this so competitors as as you are um i just want to um fast forward 10 years from now danny and you've gone on to your illustrious career in god knows where else and then you get this call from um the office of the prosecutor of the icc saying finally we're doing butcher and we've got x in the in the dock and uh you was there you saw what you saw danny do you take the call are you would you testify have you have you ever thought about that role that you might have to play yeah i definitely thought about that role because we were among the first there we have some of the pictures of the scene that was undisturbed we have you know i have pictures of all 20 bodies before they were moved and i think some of them were moved quite soon after we got there or certainly sort of um, you know, Ukrainian authorities got there, so you know we have, you know, mint material from that fr- from that scene, which you know, od- obviously at the time I thought it could be could be useful, and I know that you know AFP has told us to keep that material as, as they do as we do in all cases with, with any with anything in this, whether it's any incident in any country um, that could potentially end up in in court somehow. You know, we, we are we are told to keep keep our notes, keep our our photos, keep our videos, and all the raw stuff. As to whether I, you know, in ten years' time, my first call would be to AFP HQ in Paris to say, "What do you think about this?" I don't know honestly what the AFP policy is on this. I think that 
they would probably decide on a case-by-case basis. In theory, I would be prepared, but I wouldn't do anything without, you know, the say-so of the say-so of the people people I work for. Wonderfully diplomatic answer, and I'm sure you're absolutely right. That's the correct thing you, you should do, and that's what every journalist would do, is check with the bosses and see what's on. But... So rather than asking whether you would do it, I mean, could you, you've seen other journalists at the ICTY and maybe even at the ICC sort of testifying. I mean, you know that journalists do testify. I mean, have you just ever imagined yourself generally in the situation of testifying at any of these courts or is that, that just not something that's that struck you? No, I could I could definitely imagine it because, you know, I have factual details I think could be you know they could be in theory useful and if I if I had details that people thought would be useful I would you know I I would I would want to I would want to tell them because you know and that's why I got into journalism in the first place that's why I wrote the, the stories so you know in in, in theory yes and I, you know I, I've seen other people I mean I've, I've watched some of the testimony given by and read some of the testimony given by by journalists. I think Jeremy Byrne in particular, um, the read read some others as well. And you know, I think it, they they played a valuable role in in these trials. I th- I think the you know I know that there have been journalists who've refused. I know particularly from from the US, where you know there was a consideration that somehow this is outside the sort of the journalists' pledge of neutrality in a way that they should keep a distance from it. I can I can see that argument as well. It would be something that anyone would have to weigh up very carefully if they if they did get the get the call. But you know, I mean, a, a it's a long way off, and yeah, I mean, it's entirely hypothetical, as as a politician might might say. Just to also draw the scene, as Danny said, there is in journalism there are very different ways of viewing this. A lot of American news organizations basically say no. For example, New York Times reporters can never testify or give evidence to a prosecutor uh, the the organization does not allow them to testify in court never. never i am um, asked one of the new york times reporters who was reporting on isis she has all the receipts from isis in the in the maghreb and they're making an archive of it and i was like well you know that might be used in a court case would you testify and she said well i'm not allowed to that just doesn't happen i don't know what the reuters policy is but i can imagine that there could be a blanket ban on it for me and i know we were talking yesterday with dutch war crimes prosecutors who had a syrian prosecution and they had an article in the guardian where the man they were prosecuting was kind of bragging that he was a big guy and in an ISIS militia, and they wanted to interview the journalist about it. And he also said no, because he wanted to remain neutral. I think The Guardian lets a journalist decide for themselves, because I know Ed Vuliami famously testified at length in several Bosnia trials. Well, maybe it also leads on to just that small extra question about this idea of neutrality uh, journalism. When you've been there, you've seen stuff, Danny, on the ground in Ukraine, how does it now colour the rest of your work? Because here we are in The Hague and we're reporting on the prospects of potential war crimes. We're talking about the way that the investigation is being being put together. What do you bring back with you from Ukraine that kind of colours how you how you cover this? And and at the heart of that, you know, can you quote unquote remain neutral? 
as I mentioned, the, the day after we made this discovery in in Bucha, I left Kiev because it was the end of my it was the end of my stint, and I had to come back to the Hague. I very much felt though that I had kind of unfinished business, and you know, I mean, we'd seen these, you know, these are obviously they're not just bodies. There's twenty people lying in the street, twenty people whose lives had ended, people who, with shopping bags, people who'd literally like fallen over with their bikes on top of them as if, you know, life, you could just see where their life had stopped. And, you know, obviously I wanted to know who these people were, who had killed them, how they'd been killed. Because obviously the, the, the situation was very strange as well. You had one person with his hands tied, others weren't. Some had, uh, I think two had um, white armbands around their arms. Um, all in different circumstances. I couldn't figure out the circumstances in which they all could have been killed. I couldn't understand. I, I wanted to know who they were, who, what, are they, what are their lives like, who were the people who mourned them. And, you know, to, to go the next day felt felt strange. And I, you know, I think this is a very common thing. I, I was listening to a documentary with Fergal Keane, the BBC reporter. He was talking about Rwanda, which is obviously of a totally different magnitude to what I saw. But he, he said the same thing, that he felt strange leaving, you know, leaving the country behind leaving these people behind and leaving the story behind. So, you know, for me, it's in a way, it's kind of, I guess, serendipitous that I, I do work in The Hague. In a way, it allows things to come full circle because, you know, I, I would hope or I expect that some of these cases will end up at the ICC. And if they do, you know, it would give me a sense of, I guess, a sense of closure, but certainly a sense of professional satisfaction to be able to cover them even if it's just the sort of any charges are delayed because i you know i'm not sure i'll be here when the when any trial takes place because that could be that could be a, lo a long long time but you know i mean because i think speaking to other journalists you know when you when you leave a place like this it you it comes with you and you kind of stay there you know, certainly for several weeks or months afterwards and in some cases longer so you know these questions keep keep nagging at you and i've Forgive me for giving AFP a plug, but I have colleagues there who've done a, a really fantastic investigation looking at four of the people who were found on that street and going, you know, they they did amazing work, like going to literally just going to the morgue, um, waiting around, trying to speak to people, I mean, in, in terrible conditions, um, and found these people, found the relatives of these people to find out, find out who these people were, you know, that they were just people kind of, who were cycling on errands or going to see friends who were who were then shot and they you know found out as well that uh, that there was a sort of Russian kind of command post, but partly because the area was so near Pin, it was like on the road all the way through, which you know might explain explains why this street may have been so deadly. And I, I can also say there's also been a superb Reuters investigation recently in, into the same incidents, who the you know possible culprits were or, you know, the situation were. You know, work like this is, is, is incredibly important and, you know, it gives me sort of a little faith, I guess, that, you know, maybe journalism can make a bit of a difference because, you know, we can tell these stories of these, you know, I, how, you know it's just terrible to think that these people might remain unidentified or faceless as such. Now, you left after this, but then after Bucha became such a big story, I also saw reports of like the Ukrainian government kind of, there are some, well, I won't say organized trips, but there were, there were journalists going uh, with the government showing them that. And how do you feel about that aspect of it, that it then becomes a kind of destination? I don't know how to explain this. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's normal 
and you know it serves a purpose you know it means that you get i can understand you know the ukrainians have since the start of the war and before run a, a masterful public relations operation frankly um you know they have been very tight on restricting people restricting journalists from seeing what they don't want to see sometimes and they've been um very good at uh facilitating journalists to see what what they do want them to see um so it was natural that they would take them on these trips um i think in a war a press trip is a necessary evil sometime you know we went on some uh i think you know the russians have organized them as well and and, and uh many media organizations have gone on those i think as you know sometimes somewhere like mariupol for example there's no way you're going to get in there except for those incredibly brave ap journalists who are there for a while you know there's no way you can get to these places sometimes and you know as long as you're clear that you know this is a press trip the russians or the ukrainians took us to these places that you know this person was made available to speak whatever as long as you're clear about it sometimes it's the only way um and i think it's a you know i think it's it was inevitable and kind of necessary that you know for these big press visits to happen in Bucha. but at the same time i was glad that we not even just that we found it but i was i was glad that someone was able to see the scene before it got turned into a a destination or you know because that that way it makes it harder for people to question it you've explained it already but just to re- reiterate you didn't go there at the urging of the Ukrainian authorities or somebody pointed you to that before. This was an individual AFP decision from your team that happened at the time you were there. It was exactly that. We were not on a we were not accompanied by the military. We didn't go in by the military. We weren't sanctioned by the military to enter Bucha. It was just, you know, in a way it was, I mean, a bit of, you know, journalistic shoe leather, but in a way, and, and basically it was a determination. It was our driver who was talking to people. I know some news organizations provide counseling afterwards. I remember uh, my husband was working for the Dutch uh, national TV and was sent to Kashmir after that great big earthquake and had some mandatory counseling session to deal with having seen a week of uh, horrible destruction. Do you get anything like that or are you just supposed to deal with it? That's that's a coincidence, actually, because I, I was based in Pakistan at the time, so I, I covered that earthquake as well. Um, and that it was yeah, it was really devastating and quite traumatic and stayed with me for a long time. Back then, there was not a culture of counselling, certainly not at AFP. I think less generally in the in the in the news world, you know, it wasn't there wasn't so much of a culture culture of that. That has definitely changed. I mean, one of the one of the first things that we were told and offered when we got back from Ukraine was that there were, there was access to counseling for people who for people who wanted it and that we should think carefully about it and that we and you know given the signs to look out for um you know i think kind of anxiety and sleepless nights and all the rest of it and you know the images um continuing to stay there I'm glad the AFP is offering some counseling i hope uh, you won't need it and i hope that indeed working in the Hague gives you a sense of a purpose also in that uh, it i think that helps a lot with our job sometimes people are like why are you covering on the war crimes and the genocide and it's got to be horrible and i'm just like well no, you know i'm writing about it i'm letting people know so i feel there's a purpose to what i do and i'm not just doing it to hear the horrificness of it exactly yeah i mean i i i, I feel the same way and i i do hope it you know i do hope to be able to cover some of that in the future like i said to, to have a bit of yeah professional professional closure about it apart from anything else but you're right i mean the i've noticed from just covering some of the war crimes trials here of of subjects 
who I've never covered before, although the conflicts in, in, in some African countries that I, I, we've been covering, the details are absolutely horrific and weirdly traumatizing in their own way. I mean, which is, you know, a, a thing that a lot of news organizations are now being careful about kind of vicarious trauma, particularly like video editors who are like handling videos from like Ukraine or Syria all day long and are, you know, end up, you know, with sort of secondhand trauma that can be almost worse than other kinds. Uh, when the conflict just started, I saw some guides on social media on how to deal with seeing these kind of movies and what to look out for. We'll link to that in, in our show notes for people who are interested who cannot look away from the war on Ukraine. Thank you so much for coming in and responding to our various questions and helping us understand exactly what it was like there. And great to see you back. Um, the first question that we always ask for our extra questions is uh, whether there was something that we should already have asked you. So is there a question that we missed out? Um, that's a question I regularly ask my <laughs> interviewees as well. And I think I did ask a few people that in the uh, in the field in in Ukraine, embarrassingly enough, but um, I can't think of anything else. What was that? Is there anything I should say? I can't think of anything. No, no, it's a it's a great question for for journalists, which is why I also ask it, and which is why I ask it on the podcast. Our next question is a new uh, question that we have: is what's been kind of your favorite or most memorable court case that you've covered? Wow, that's a good one. Can I have a minute to think about it? Because, yeah, when I think of court cases, my mind instantly goes back, not to here, but to the the, the Basingstoke Gazette, which is the um, local paper that I started on in um, in the UK and covered all kinds of, like, ridiculous things. Hang on, let me see. Um, we also like the ridiculous court cases. That's, well, of course, uh, yeah. That's more fun than the horrific war crimes ones, usually. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, even though I didn't actually get to see him, the most memorable case I covered in the... In the Hague uh, was the uh, the Mladic hearing last year, largely just because we were in a tent uh, outside um, yes. watching this. We were in a tent outside watching this, you know, this man who'd be convicted, you know, one of the worst terrible genocides in Europe, you know, in a, like I said, in a tent outdoors in the, in the sun. It um, was super sunny. Yes, it's yeah. weird, right? And it was the... It's the same kind of weather that it was when Srebrenica fell, for example, that was also super sunny and hot. And it was about the same time, which was really odd yeah. for the people who were there, who were also there and some of his victims. Who yeah, were... it feels really incongruous and uh, and strange, you know, and hearing all the testimony and, and knowing the seriousness of what's gone on. And yet you're, yeah, like I said, in a in a tent outdoors because there isn't enough space and because of coronavirus rules and you know court, court cases themselves are strange because you're in this artificial setting but I mean certainly the biggest circus that I've covered as a sort of court case has been when I was based in London um, was after the arrest of Julian Assange from from WikiLeaks uh, and then we we he, this went through a series of hearings at the you know the high court and even went to the uh, the Supreme Court uh, of the UK. And, you know, for me, that was really interesting, not just because, you know, you finally got to see a glimpse of this, you know, sort of legendary reclusive figure with his with his white hair um, in a courtroom in the UK, but just the, the sheer level of interest and the, 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 the maniacal circus that was outside the courts was, was, you know, far greater than anything I've ever, ever experienced anywhere else. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a weird one. I can imagine. Our final question is always, 
what are you reading, watching, listening to if you listen to podcasts, either to get more into your work or to get away from everything. We're also happy to know about your Netflix favorites and the stuff you do just to not think about war crimes. Or, I don't know, keep keep cricket scores. <laughs> <laughs> watching is mainly kind of um, skateboarding videos on, on Instagram because I, I, I like to... I've been skateboarding since I was a teenager and have kept it up ever since. And that like that helps to keep me I don't know, exercise and the, the, you know, excitement of it helps to keep me kind of, you know, keep me mentally fit and healthy. I like to think, um, reading, I'm actually reading life and fate by Vasily Grossman, which is a very large, long novel about the second world war in, in, in the Soviet union and more particularly in Ukraine, uh, which my, girlfriend's uh stepfather bought her for christmas randomly and said it was very good and it sat, to be honest it's such a doorstopper that sat around the house for a couple of years and she didn't make much headway with it but when i got back from ukraine i was like do i really want to read about this yeah i do actually because uh, you know what i could then reading about this you know these stories of world war ii um it's a pretty grim book but it, you know you, i can picture the place now i can picture the towns i can picture the the, the the scenery that that sort of endless rolling samey uh, countryside that you get in Ukraine and I can I can see the same things happening in a way I can you know I can see a I can see a peaceful society being being plunged into war I can see people whose peaceful lives have been turned completely upside down and yeah it's 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 sort of interesting to me to see it through a, a different fictional lens. In terms of movie, I can't, I can't watch war movies at all at the moment, which I didn't think was going to happen, because you know, I've always been a big fan, uh, you know, like most, like a lot of people, I think. But I can't watch them at the moment. They look, they're simultaneously sort of fake, but also I don't know, bring bring stuff back, which I don't particularly want to see at the moment. So um, I have been, yeah, hence the skateboarding videos. Sounds like a much better plan thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this uh and uh, we're sorry to dredge up some stuff maybe but also we're very happy that our listeners who are usually on the other side on the more sanitized court side of things what it's like reporting on it and also the kind of choices you have to make when you do the work that we do that sometimes gets slammed by lawyers for <laughs> not being accurate enough or exactly there you know this is in the field is how it works so thank you so much for those insights thank you for having me it's like i said this is, is actually good to talk about these things and talk them through um it's uh it's actually helpful so thank you this was asymmetrical haircuts your international justice podcast created and presented by janet anderson and stephanie van den berg music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>